Welcome to Rising, where we give you the news and our opinions about said news, whether you like it or not. Presumably, you, you like it or you would just stop watching, right? No, you you are familiar with the concept of hate watching, Rob. You think we're hate watched? There's always some hate watchers amongst us, and I don't judge them. If they're broadening their horizons, are, they're making sure they're not in a silo. Are my fans hate watching you and your fans hate watching me? I think the nature of this show <laughs> is that it's like a 50-50 split of hate watchers, <laughs> respectively. <laughs> All right, let's get to the news. Brianna, what's going on? Well, Ray Epps, a former U.S. Marine and two-time Trump supporter, is suing Fox News, alleging the network and former host Tucker Carlson knowingly promoted what his complaint calls destructive conspiracy theories about his involvement in the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, more specifically that he was a federal agent who spurred on the violence to tarnish those involved. First reported by the New York Times, the lawsuit is seeking an undisclosed amount of money and damages. Hmm. Well, the suit details how Epps and his wife came to believe 2020 election falsehoods being promoted by the former president, Donald Trump, and also by Fox News, according to them, saying they were persuaded by the lies broadcast by Fox, asserting this election had been stolen to exercise their perceived responsibilities as patriotic citizens to gather in the nation's capital on January 6th to quote, stop the steal. Now, Epps attorney gave a statement to the Times, which reads, Ray is taking the next steps to vindicate his rights by seeking accountability for Fox's lies that have caused him and Robin so much harm. Representative for Fox News did not immediately return a request for comment to the Hill. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this whole story, here's a clip of Carlson, Tucker Carlson, when he was still with Fox News, talking about Ray Epps and January 6th. This is from last July. Let's watch. Part of its coverage last summer, the Times published a video documentary in which the Times reported that one man was actually caught on camera planning an insurrection, encouraging a breach of the Capitol complex. That man's name is Ray Epps. Now, the New York Times noted that Epps was videotaped on both January 5th and January 6th, urging protesters to storm the Capitol. Here it is. We need to go in to the Capitol. Let's go! So I'm going to put it out there. I'm probably going to go to jail tomorrow. We need to go into the Capitol. Into the Capitol. All right, so in the lawsuit, uh, Mr. Epps uh, alleges that because of all of the uh, harassment uh, that he's experienced because of the allegations that Fox News has made about how he was a, a plant, uh, that he and his wife had to close their wedding venue business in Arizona and uh, move to a small motorhome in Utah because of these you know, threats and harassment. Whether or not he's going to be able to prove a, a direct relationship to the reporting that happened and that that reporting was, in fact, malicious as opposed to just delivering the news in a way that happened to reflect poorly on him is going to be his challenge. And I'm glad the mainstream media has finally found a January 6th uh, person that they're really sympathetic to for some reason. Um, right. One would say that maybe he's just being—I mean, obviously, no one should send anyone death threats for any reason, regardless of what they've said or done. Uh, but maybe he's being shamed and suffering consequences for having um, done something that the mainstream media thinks is really bad in all other contexts. But I mean, the, the interesting thing <laughs> to me is—so there's two pieces here. There is the Trump accountability and the Fox News slash Tucker Carlson accountability. And what we learned— 
from the Dominion lawsuit is that Fox News is more vulnerable than people expected it might have been mm -hmm. from maybe not this exact kind of suit, but from the de defamation case yeah, that was like relevant in Dominion because we got that treasure trove of behind the scenes texts and emails and things. They made it clear that the state of mind of the reporters when they were reporting was not in line with the things that they were saying on air at all times. So there was of the potential, it's settled obviously, so we won't see what happened, what would have happened in trial, but there was the potential to actually have a relatively strong case for them intentionally misrepresenting facts on air in a way that is in fact malicious. So if he has access to certain documents that perhaps came out in the, the context of the D Dominion discovery, he might potentially be able to find something that said, I know Mike Epps is not an op, but the audience Ray likes that. Like Ray that's yeah. Ray Epps, sorry. <laughs> I keep confusing him with his actor. Um, but we wanna we, we were running out to get this guy anyway. The likelihood of I'm not saying that exists, yeah, I, obviously. I think that's, unlikely. But that's what he's hoping for. Well, sure. The other part of it is this interesting argument about Donald Trump's accountability. And we've made the case on this show that I do think a lot of the folks who were there at 1-6 were misled by Donald Trump claiming election fraud, telling people to go to the Capitol, representing in some ways, perhaps only tacitly, that he had their back and would support them if they did, in fact, storm the Capitol, that they were doing something patriotic and that they were on the right side of history. And I've seen interviews with other uh, January 6th protesters who have expressed r regret and frustration that they were misled in those ways by Donald Trump. Not that they don't politically believe what they believe, mm -hmm. but that they, they thought that there was more of a there there based on the representations of Donald Trump. Now, whether there's a legal argument that Donald Trump is responsible for their behavior um, is one thing, but I certainly think there is definitely a, an interesting and kind of strong moral argument about his culpability. And I wonder if any of the people present or who weren't present but were sympathetic to the 1-6 protesters had their attitude toward Donald Trump negatively affected at all when he was largely unscathed by that whole scenario. But so many individuals who were encouraged to go there and enter the Capitol that day because of him ended up facing some real consequences. Right. Well, I'm not interested in carrying any water for Donald Trump with respect to January 6th. It is totally his fault. He should not be president again. End of story. <laughs> but. This guy, Ray Epps, is on camera saying explicitly, "We should enter the Capitol," mm -hmm. and the people around him are, are saying like, no. no. They are rejecting <laughs> yeah. that idea, and in fact, they are accusing him of being a Fed, a yeah. plant, because the person inducing you. And, th and this is why, like, this is not a conspiracy theory in general. There are plenty of examples, tons of examples from prosecutions of federal officials or uh, law enforcement or assets of law enforcement inducing people to commit crimes so that they can charge them, so that there's enough evidence. This has happened uh, to Islamic people um, online in chat rooms all the time. Uh, it happens in uh, sexual uh, predators category too. And I mean, again, these are gross people who you know went along with doing gross things, but it was entrapment in how they were engaged with, you know, it's, it's they're not actually meeting some underage person online, they're talking to a law enforcement agent the whole time. You can think that's appropriate and that's how we get creepy people, fine, mm -hmm. but don't tell me that law enforcement never pretends to be someone else in order to, to, to get you to, to actually commit to a crime or an organized part of a crime so they can arrest you. It happens constantly. So it's not a ridiculous idea. And, and I, I, you know, Tucker knows those things and took this idea seriously. Maybe some other Fox News people did. Now, all that said, I have not seen a shred of actual evidence suggesting that Ray Epps was a, a federal asset. There's a lot of speculation that, well, that's why he wasn't charged. Mm -hmm. That's why, after they interviewed him, 
Um, his name disappeared from the list, the FBI's list of people they're interested in with connection to January 6th. Um, that's why his name got taken off the list. But that's all speculative. So I haven't seen any actual evidence. And, uh, and uh, uh, Chris Ray got asked about it uh, yesterday. I think we have that, right? Can we actually play that next? Do we have that? Yeah, uh, they're bringing it up. So uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray was being questioned um, yesterday in part of the, these oversight hearings about a lot of issues, um, including that one. And I think we have it now. Can I get a commitment? You just watched the video. I'm an old law dog. I understand a little bit about probable cause. He did very little. There was very little difference what he did. And Mr. Strecka, you can see him. He's encouraging. I almost think he's inciting a riot. He's encouraging people the night prior to go into the Capitol the day of go into the Capitol. And he was at the first breach and he breached the restricted area. Everybody, a lot of people getting arrested for not going into the Capitol, but they're in the restricted area. But yet, Ray Epps, who many people feel fed, 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 right? And there's a lot of cloud over this. So I, I, my point is this. You arrested a lot of folks for unlawful activity. You just saw the video. And I will tell I you, order, Mr. Ray, Mr. if uh, you don't Chair. arrest Mr. Epps, there's gentlemen. a reason behind it. I believe you know order, what it order. is. And it appears to me you are protecting this guy. I strongly recommend you get your house back in order. With that, I yield back. Mr. Chairman, if I might briefly. Gentlemen, we respond, and we got a couple point of orders. Uh, it is not never, a unanimous consent. Excuse me. Go ahead. It, it has never been appropriate for an FBI director in congressional testimony to be weighing in on who is or isn't going to be arrested and what who is or isn't going to get charged, which is a prosecutor's decision. If you yeah. yeah, I mean, the reality is he's not going to answer specific questions of any nature in this format um, and you know law enforcement officials are, are going to thwart any inquiry whether in good faith or bad faith into this matter out of habit um, and spite <laughs> yeah so I, I just was taking a look at the complaint um, and it's interesting he's he includes a bunch of uh, text messages that are intended to lay out the case for him having kind of an independent, non-federal, non-fed reasons for wanting to go in uh, protest at the Capitol. He text messages between him and family members talking about how this is what Trump wants and how he believed the Stop the Steal narrative. He has the screen grabs of uh, vendors selling T-shirts saying, go get uh, Ray Epps. Um, uh, who, who is Ray Epps? Arrest Ray Epps for leading January 6th federal insurrection. And he says that this is as evidence of the kind of targeting that was the result of uh, Tucker Carlson. There, there are some of the t-shirts from, mm -hmm. <laughs> from the complaint. Um, he has uh, transcripts of Tucker Carlson segments in which he specifically targets uh, Ray Epps as a as a potential uh, federal operative and arguing that he knew what he was doing and that there was no evidence that he's been cleared of these kinds of charges. Um, and he basically makes the argument that he was unduly harmed as a consequence of a pogrom that was uh, incited against him largely because of Fox News. And it, it, only, only I think, because of the disclosures that we learned through Dominion do I think there's any chance here of him yeah, having yeah. any kind of a legitimate claim. Um, but it, it, it is interesting, at least from a symbolic perspective, to have his case laid out, because it, it is a little bit—I mean, what do you think about this? It does feel a little bit um, irresponsible, perhaps, 
for a news agency to lean perhaps as ha as hard as Tucker Carlson did into accusations about Mike, uh, sorry, Ray Epps, and raising that kind of speculation without having perhaps as much proof of there was and without offering yeah. consistently the evidence that he was not, in fact, implicated. Yeah, fine. I, I would, uh, you know, urge people to be aware of the fact that no one, Fox News or anyone else, has been able to present actual evidence that he is a federal agent or asset. Yeah. And absent that, your just like hunch is not enough. Yeah. You can have a hunch that causes you to look into the matter, but you have to actually get some evidence and that has not happened. Yeah. But that said, I mean, again, the mainstream media has dragged January Sixers through them, like, and they think deservedly, um, has, you know, has, has plastered people's pictures and wall-to-wall -wall coverage of all the bad things January 6th people did. And I'm sure that's, they, those people have suffered business and reputational harms, and the mainstream media would say that's totally deserved. So why it's different in this guy's case, when he did, like, he did tell people to go into the Capitol. But, but Robbie, s smearing, reporting mm -hmm. on something that somebody did do, you know, smearing them for well, storming the Capitol. Wait a minute. But smearing somebody for storming the Capitol if they actually did storm the Capitol is one thing. And you can subjectively think it was good or bad for them not to do that, but saying that person stormed the Capitol and then them getting criticism for literally storming the Capitol is not different than alleging that someone in bad faith stormed the Capitol because they're a federal operative when there's no evidence for them. There's a difference between smearing somebody for what they did and telling what is ostensibly a lie about them until proven otherwise. Yeah. I mean, this is why I don't, I, I'm kind of not a big fan of defamation law in general, like you can disagree with the thrust of this reporting. Again, I, I, I do have a lot of disagreements with it because, again, we want that actual evidence of what they're claiming. I, but I don't think it was, I don't think it was even malicious to the extent the Dominion claims were just like factually inaccurate claims. Mm -hmm. um, it seems, this seems like kind of like a fishing expedition because you can do discovery, get everybody's text, and you know, maybe he could get lucky and he finds some text that would seem to confirm what he's saying. Um, I just, I, I'm like, I don't. I don't like this practice in general. Well, that is still the law. Defamation cases are still a tool sure. for people to vindicate themselves um, when they feel like they've been smeared in the public lie. This is a, a, a one count. He's he's um, uh, is charged. He's at, he's uh, charging defamation per se, and the second one is uh, in false false light, uh, being portrayed sure. in in inaccurate ways in the, in the media. So we'll see where this goes. It's pretty interesting uh, to follow. You, re you referenced the fact that mainstream media has not been particularly sympathetic to 1-6 protesters, and that's obviously true. I don't know that the treatment of Mike Epps, he, he lives in a world of his own. Ray Epps. Oh, sorry, he, well, I don't who know is, why I do Who that. is Mike Epps? He's, uh, who is, uh, where's my t-shirt that says, when he's the, an actor. Ray Epps, who is he's Mike like Epps? He's a black actor, it's not important. <laughs> um, I'm gonna Google him. <laughs> but, uh, I don't yeah. know who this guy is, anyway. Yeah, well. Uh, Ray, Ray Epps, uh, he, it, I don't know that this is one of those cases where we can kind of reason, well, all the people that I hate also hate him, mm -hmm. so he must be in the wrong. This isn't like the mainstream media, uh, the liberal media versus the conservative media, all of the media now is not sympathetic to this guy, except for that for a second he was willing to you know, push back a little bit against the right because the right was pushing back on it. There was that 60 minutes was glowing. Yeah, I know, but he's not, nobody cares about well, right. Yeah. I mean, like this guy is on an island by himself with this lawsuit. So we'll see where he's going right. to if he gets anywhere with this. And it also, I think it's reflective of some of the interesting factions that have evolved now that Tucker and Fox News are in two different camps. Do you still like Fox News now that Tucker is no longer there? Do you side with Epps against Tucker? 
but also against Fox. How do your allegiance fall out? Obviously, Donald Trump is in the mix here. It's a lot. I don't know, man. Uh, we will continue to follow that. But coming up next, we have an in-depth interview with 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. Stay tuned. The 2024 Democratic hopeful Marianne Williamson joins us now for an exclusive in-depth interview. Marianne, welcome to Rising. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, let's get right into it. Uh, tell us about the campaigning you've been doing in early states and how you feel about the attention you're getting thus far. It's very exciting. New Hampshire is going to continue to have its primary, regardless of the fact that the DNC has decided to pass it by. And uh, people in the early primary states know the importance of their role. And uh, Granite Staters are very much that. You know, we there's a, a television network there called WMUR. And uh, I did this thing called Conversation with the Candidate. And uh, it was exciting, you know, and the clip from it has gotten over 2 million views on TikTok. And, you know, people are People are, are listening. People are hearing me, and it's it's exciting. It's exciting being on the ground in New Hampshire. And uh, I'm in New York now doing press, and then I'm going to Los Angeles, and then I'm going to uh, Atlanta to do a labor event, and then going to South Carolina, where I'll be all over the place. So, you know, it's uh, full on making it happen. You know, after being initially kind of blasé uh, about what it would mean for Biden not to be on the ballot in the first two primary contests, there have been some news stories percolating over the last week or so that seem to suggest that both the establishment media and the establishment Democratic Party are increasingly concerned about what it would mean to have all of that um, media attention for a significant amount of time uh, before uh, South Carolina, during which the story would be that someone other than Joe Biden won those contests. I mean, Axios just put a piece out, I believe, a few days ago, saying Biden could lose the first two 20, uh, 20, 24 contests to RFK Jr. But of course, polls actually show that you and RFK Jr. are very close in the uh, uh, in New Hampshire, at least. Uh, what do you make of the Democratic Party's decision to basically cede that ground? And do you expect that any anxiety is growing here, where they might change their mind and allow and, and, and choose instead to reverse their decision? to do what some people have described as rigging the primary uh, so that Biden's first contest is in a state where he does very well? Well, clearly they have a conundrum, don't they? Mm. The best labor is off to go astray. They just wanted to take all the attention off uh, New Hampshire, and New Hampshire said um, no. And yes, Bobby and I are neck and neck in New Hampshire now. So we're going forward with this. So clearly uh, the Biden administration has a conundrum here. What they will decide to do, of course, is up to them. But uh, they're noticing that this can't be, you know, they're, they're just trying to keep the lid uh, on any conversation other than theirs. And they're doing it in various ways. And New Hampshire, as is very characteristic of New Hampshire, is refusing to go along. There's been um, some reporting last few days, and uh, I mean, honestly, there's a lot of reporting on this in general. Of, you know, Joe Biden, President Biden's um, age. There was uh, kind of spotlighting that behind closed doors, he's often angry with people, that staffers don't want to be by themselves around him. Um, you know, what do you make of what we're learning about? Um, you know, how Joe Biden uh, treats the people around him, um, you know, whether age is actually indeed catching up with him. You know, you're not supposed to ask that, but we, you know, we all see how he, how he stumbles over his words and how he looks. And I, I think people 
imagine is he, you know, would he, would he be up for six uh, more years of running the entire country? Well, those are two separate issues, of course. As far as his age is concerned, if you want to know, if the president wants to prove that he's up to uh, the task, for instance, of debating Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, then he should debate Robert Kennedy and myself. There's a, there's a way for the American people to see, uh, is he on his game mentally to handle something like that? And that is to debate us. That's number one. In terms of the fact that he used the F word in the office, uh, and so did Clinton. And so for that matter, you know, there's a line from Jefferson talking about George Washington, how when the president is upset, I would rather not be in the room. Um, I think that the issue of the president uh, getting upset when someone hadn't done what they, he needed them to do is uh, as silly as getting upset about anyone else, namely myself. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about that, if you think this is... You know, it seemed to me that there's some actual parity here after we've seen there was some coverage about you and complaints about your relationship with staffers, complaints about Amy Klobuchar. This seems to be one of the first stories uh, involving a male politician being criticized for his tone with staffers. You know, do, do, I mean, how do, how, do you, how do you look at that? Do you think that this is evidence that perhaps it's not as gendered as it maybe has been in the past? Or do you see that the attention that was paid to that particular story, do you think it wasn't sufficient or somehow it was less than the, the level of scrutiny that you got when um, that, that piece came out about uh, your, your staff relationships? That, that wasn't scrutiny. That was smearing. Mm. You know, when, when you are tried in a court of law, there are rules of due process. And the, the accused has rights as well. So if somebody's going to accuse you of something and you're in a court of law, they have raised their right hand and they've sworn to tell the truth, under oath, to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And your lawyer gets to cross-examine them and ask certain questions of them and show the judge and the jury certain evidence. But if you're tried in the, in, in the media, particularly a media who's whose clear focus is to bring you down, or you're tried on the internet, or you're tried in the court of public opinion, you don't have those same opportunities to defend yourself. And uh, that's what's going on here. Well, Mary Williamson, I want to switch gears for a little bit and ask you about recent news that was big on the left, AOC's choice to endorse uh, Joe Biden on uh, the Pod Save America podcast. She specifically said that given the primary choices available so far, that she would be endorsing Joe Biden. Many on the left are, were surprised by that, given how close your platform is to Bernie Sanders' 2020 uh, platform and her endorsement of Bernie Sanders in that context. What do you make of the endorsement? Her words were, given the field, I am endorsing the president. For me, given his policies, I am running against him. So yeah. let's be clear here. We are experiencing the hottest days in human history, the hottest days on record. This is a president who has given more oil drilling permits even than Trump did, who has approved the Willow Project as well as the exportation of liquefied natural gas. He is claiming Bidenomics as this great economic success story, which it is for 20% of Americans. It's not going to do anything. All, and all they're saying they're going to do in the future is finish the job. There's nothing here about bringing up the minimum wage for uh, one third of America's workers who live on less than $15 an hour. And in most American cities, living wage is $24 or $25 an hour. These plans have absolutely nothing to do with dealing with the fact that uh, one in four Americans live with medical debt. And all these lefties are endorsing him? So this is a story about the American left and it's, and it's where it is right now. So what is she endorsing exactly? 
I think the fact that uh, this early, they've got it all wrapped up. You've got, you know, the business on the on the environment alone, you've got four major environmental organizations that have endorsed him. What yeah. are they endorsing? What are they endorsing? Well, the argument that he makes and that people within the Democratic Party make in his defense is that the climate spending that he was able to pass is the largest in terms of volume, numerical amount in history. And what the left would argue is that it is far less than what it needs to be spent in order to actually have a meaningful impact on uh, rising global temperatures, et cetera. So uh, what do you do with that when there are so many people in, as you've pointed out, the environmental justice space, people who are members of ostensibly left-leaning environmental organizations who are spending so much of their time and energy defending and rallying behind Joe Biden when other environmental activists believe he needs to continue to be pushed. How do you push someone while you are endorsing and defending them? Thank you. Thank you. How do you, how do how does that work exactly? So this is the deal. Those who are touting, as you said, the very healthy investments in green energy that are part of the Inflation Reduction Act. That's true. The problem is that the Willow Project alone nullifies all of those. Hmm. And the 800 and what at this point, way beyond $858 billion defense budget, the U.S. defense industry is the single largest institutional emitter of greenhouse gases. So the playbook of the Biden administration is it's almost like a purse thief, isn't it? Look over here so they won't notice what you're doing over there. The Democrats have, have uh, the corporatist Democrats have proven over the last few years that they're really good at saying the right thing. Oh, I'm the climate president and I realize that the climate is an existential threat. Listen, we are beyond doing what you can in an incremental way. We are in the midst of the emergency now. You know, I'm reminded of an article I read that Barbara Ehrenreich wrote years ago. I think it was when Clinton is president, but I think it's true today. Uh, she said, what has happened to the American left? She said, what's happened to the American left is that everybody's been invited to the White House once. Yeah. The whoredom I see from people who get the White House Christmas card or get their phone calls returned and are so easy to schmooze, so easy, you know, when somebody from the administration says, you know, we're with you. But like hell, you're with me. You will not stand up to big oil. So, you know, all I can do is point out the hypocrisy and hope that more voters figure it out. Yeah, there's a number of issues uh, where one might think <clears throat> the left, it, it's represented to the extent it has representation in Congress, um, would be doing something to challenge the administration. You know, we were talking yesterday, Brianna and I, about um, the reauthorization of FISA, which allows for warrantless surveillance of American citizens, something, you know, many on the left joined with libertarians on the right in opposing. Even Joe Biden himself, when he, he was a senator, you know, raised concerns about this. Now, uh, you know, Matt Gates is leading a charge against this. And I really was hoping for, expecting, members of the squad to be standing with him. And maybe that moment's still coming, but I, I can't find any reporting or press releases or anything suggesting that this, you know, this issue, the, the kinds of issues that people like Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden and Glenn Greenwald, you know, people of the left raised um, are, are now, you know, why are they, why, are, why is no one doing anything about them on the left anymore? Darling, they're bought and sold. And I don't think they're bought and sold for money. It's not even about money. They're bought and sold for, we'll give you the, uh, we'll give you the appointment on the committee next time. You'll mm -hmm. stay in favor with the establishment leadership. And then if you're in favor with the establishment leadership, maybe they'll give you a cookie. 
Mm. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I think at a certain point we need to look at people's behavior. I'm not here to psychoanalyze them or even figure out their motivation. But uh, at this point, what you say in terms of their actual behavior is true. And it's up to the rest of us to make our decisions based on their behavior. Well, and I think it's time to hold people accountable. Yeah, speaking of behavior, there's uh, an interesting reality that's developing right now uh, in Congress where a group of the shall we say, Freedom Caucus uh, Republicans are endeavoring to uh, attach certain conditions to the uh, annual defense bill, uh, which are unlikely to be passed, but then consequently could tank the uh, entire bill, right? So they're adding these requests to must-pass legislation that include cuts to spending in Ukraine, which has been a key core um, ask for aspects of the uh, peace movement on both the right and the left. So there's this potentiality that they could undermine all the entire defense budget, you know, effectively stopping de de additional defense spending because of an unwillingness to ratchet back any spending on Ukraine. They've also added in a bunch of other um, requests uh, that are, I think, not progressive in the least or not um, populist in the least. But the effect of it might be that a bunch of Freedom Caucus people effectively cut military spending in a way that the left has been unwilling to do so far, especially in the last cycle with the bare, the minimal majority, um, some majority that the progressives had last time around. So I wonder what you make of that sort of effort and if you want to opine further on what you would do with respect to military funding, generally speaking, and with respect to the Ukraine war. Well, the larger issue about military funding to me is a separate issue. It's tangential to the issue of Ukraine specifically. In terms of military spending, we know the profound price gouging that is going on. Even 60 Minutes has reported on it, uh, how the uh, defense industry is price gouging the military. And I think American people on both the left and the right are ready to recognize that this canard, that somehow the more money you spend on defense, the greater your military, your national security. What a crock that is. Nobody in their right mind is now thinking that the Iraq war made us more secure or that the last 20 years in uh, Afghanistan made us more secure. Uh, some of the more uh, conservative elements in this country have pointed out you could take 10% off the military budget and uh, you'd still have a, a plenty of money for the military to work effectively. And I think you could take 20% uh, off that. We clearly have a war machine, what's called the blob in Washington. And clearly, uh, and this has been true for four to five decades, much as Eisenhower warned us, uh, our foreign policy is obscenely uh, 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 dominated uh, by the military industrial complex. So what the people on the far left and on the far right are now saying about that particular uh, issue that you just discussed has to do with funding for Ukraine, because people on the far left and the far right agree on that. There's always been a kind of isolationist tendency uh, in the United States. That, I think, is where the far right is coming from. I think people on the far left honestly believe, those who want to cut uh, the funding specifically for Ukraine, uh, feel that this is just a continuation of the same old, same old war machine, uh, basically imperialistic um, uh, activity. I believe that the imperialism of of um, uh, Russia and uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, is that's the imperialism I'm concerned uh, about on this particular one. Why is that, uh, Marion Williamson? Some people would <clears throat> say and do say that the Russian invasion was wrong, illegal, and should not have happened. But also, the, the, the 
consideration of many Americans is what America's involvement in that particular conflict should be and why. And so we're in a place now where the discussion over the last week has been Joe Biden's choice to illegally send uh, cluster bombs, a weapon uh, that disproportionately kills children and is very indiscriminate in its targets, to Ukraine to continue to fight this war. Of course, Russia has also used cluster bombs, but the question is whether or not we should be facilitating the use of weaponry that is so dangerous to vulnerable people. So that seems like, to me, a good analogy for where a lot of leftists are coming to this war. Even if you think, morally, Ukraine is in the right position, which I think most people do, the question is whether or not, A, we should be involved, and two, whether our involvement is actually bringing the war to a close more quickly, whether our stated goals are actually achievable in terms of those who think that we need to regain Crimea or establish pre-February of last year borders, um, and what the cost to the public in Ukraine and also to Americans back home who are concerned about whether or not there's going to be sufficient domestic spending to take care of our population are going to be worth uh, uh, what, we, what we're doing, whether the costs are actually going to be worth the outcomes. Well, in terms of the first thing you said about America's um, um, America's poking the bear. It's true. Both are true. Both are true that the United States does not have clean hands here and the Russians have invaded a sovereign a nation. Both are true. In terms of cluster bombs, it's horrifying. No, they should not be used. There are rules of war. There was a Gen Geneva Convention. It's not an accident that over a hundred uh, countries have banned cluster bombs. The ones that haven't are Ukraine, Russia, and the United States. So they should not be used. They have horrifying repercussions even after a war. And as you said, uh, they killed sometimes years after a war has ended, uh, innocent civilians, including children. Uh, so even uh, if you're going to say that you support uh, support for Ukraine at this point, I think it's absolutely wrong to use cluster bombs. In terms of the argument that we need that money here at home, the money that is being spent on Ukraine would not be spent on expanding Medicare, would not be expend, uh, would would not be uh, used on uh, uh, domestic uh, domestic spending. I think where there is a good argument is about cutting defense spending in general. But the idea of focusing on the funding for Ukraine as opposed to defense spending to me has no logic to it whatsoever. Mm. You know, President, former President Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis have both also come out against sending uh, cluster munitions to arm Ukraine. Um, you know, what, what do you make of this moment we're living in where the Republican uh, candidates, you know, the two leading Republican candidates, are, are, are um, sounding a note uh, that is less interventionist than the Democratic president? Well, I think when you're talking about DeSantis and Trump uh, uh, criticizing the use of cluster bombs, I welcome that. I'm glad they do. That's not specifically non-interventionist. That's specifically uh, criticizing the use of a bomb, uh, uh, munitions that should not be used. But hey, this is America. It's only been in the last few years, Robbie, that people have seemed to think if you're conservative, you think this way. If you're a liberal, you think this mm -hmm. way. If you're progressive, you think this way. If you're a Democrat, you think this way. If you're a Republican, you think uh, this way. I think that this is kind of almost the way it should be, that we all recognize that um, people have their individual views. And hey, if, if the right wants to wake up to the fact that the American military has become this this <laughs> monstrous, uncontrollable uh, facet of American uh, American politics, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's healthy. And then we can get on to the specific uh, uh, conversation about something like the Ukraine war. Mm. 
Uh, on another subject, do you think that um, a, a law, national law enforcement intelligence agencies, the FBI, et cetera, need to be reined in as well? This has obviously become a top uh, Republican uh, concern. I think RFK Jr., your, your uh, competitor, has uh, you know, also talked about, I think, seeing a lot of what they're saying about you know, the concerns that um, the, the, for censorship on social media, for, you know, for going after Trump supporters, that kind of thing. Uh, do you think it's valid for the American people, or some of them, right-leaning ones at least, to have lost uh, faith in national intelligence, um, uh, the apparatus of the state? And, and what do you think is the solution, if you do think that's a problem? First of all, absolutely yes. And it's not just people on the right who are upset about this. It's people on the left as well. You yourself mentioned FISA a few minutes ago. I think people on the left are upset as well. As soon as the Patriot Act, as soon as they passed the Patriot Act, people started yelling. And at that point, it was mainly people on the left. But uh, yes, I'm old enough to, you know, uh, you know, there was scuttlebutt about the CIA starting with the Kennedy assassination. So, yes, of course, these agencies, uh, we, we know about too many covert operations. We know about lack of accountability. And people on both left and the right are asking, who's in charge here? And who are they going after? And why are they going after? And when you mention the people, whether you're talking about, um, whether you're talking about Assange, whether you're talking about Glenn Greenwald, whether you're talking about the subject of Snowden, and whether you're talking about Chelsea Manning. And remember, Daniel Hale is still in jail. So clearly, uh, there's an official protection of some uh, covert and uh, secret type of organizations and agencies. And the fact that people are asking questions and upset about this on both left and right, I think is healthy for our democracy. Maria, I want to ask you a little bit about this electability question. Um, Oftentimes, even though uh, it's a primary, voters are concerned in looking toward the general election and are making decisions based on their perception that the candidate they pick can ultimately win down the line. This was an issue that plagued Bernie Sanders back in 2020. Voters would say, well, I like Bernie. I might even prefer Bernie. But can he beat Donald yeah. Trump? I'm not sure. Uh, I, I want to ask what your response is to voters who might feel very positively about your campaign, but have questions about what a general election contest would look like, especially as it seems increasing, increasingly plausible that Trump is going to be the nominee. Well, let's remember, in poll after poll after poll, it was demonstrated that Bernie is the one who would have beaten Trump. So the DNC didn't care. But if you were just thinking about who could actually have a better chance to beat Trump, demonstrably, there was an argument that Bernie would have had an easier chance beating Trump. I don't buy the idea that because uh, <clears throat> because Biden beat Trump in 2020, for which I and millions of us are extremely grateful, don't get me wrong, but it is not to me a logical conclusion that because he beat him in 2020, he would necessarily beat him in 2024. And also this idea that none of us should challenge him and everybody should just fall in line right now because that will make the Democrats more unified, which is what we need to be to beat uh, Trump in 2024. I don't buy that either. In, in 2000. 2016, uh, how many Republicans were running? And yet, excuse me, that, I mean 2020. And yet, wait a minute. Yeah, in yeah. 16. You had to write the first time, 2016, so yes. People running, and so many people running in 2020. Sure. And still the Republican won. So I think it's healthy for democracy. You know, if you want to know who would beat Trump, this is why we should have debates. People should see Bobby, people should see me, and people should be, uh, should see uh, uh, Biden. We have very different agendas. Uh, 
And we come across in ways that are very different. Let there be debates. Let the American people see, meaning specifically here, Democratic voters or likely Democratic voters, and let the people decide. I think it's the people who will be voting in this election for the Democrats who should decide who they think is the best person. This shouldn't be something made by secret by a bunch of men smoking cigars like it was 100 years ago or something, but it's also not something that should be made without the input of the Democratic voters. That's the point of a primary. You can't be a spoiler if you're running in the primary. You can't be a Jill Stein if you're an I, I don't even I don't want to say that like negatively about her as a person, but in terms of the the what she symbolizes, you can't be that if you're running as a Democrat in the primary. I mean, I, I agree with you about the polls, obviously, that demonstrated or that suggested at least that Bernie Sanders was going to be a stronger matchup against Donald Trump in 2016 uh, than Hillary Clinton was. But the voters obviously felt differently. The media, I think, played a big role in seeding doubt that because he was a socialist, uh, people weren't going to vote for him. There was talk about what, you know, Cubans in Miami and such and such, were they going to go along with it, all of these kinds of things. So what I'm asking you specifically is to make the case for why you think substantively in a debate context with someone like Donald Trump, head to head would be more uh, able to effectively make your case for why you should be president than if Joe Biden were the person in that position. The majority of Americans, both liberal and Democrat, say they want universal health care. The majority of Americans, according to the polls now, both uh, Democrat and Republican, say that they want tuition-free college and tech school. The majority of Americans, Republican and Democrat, including gun owners, say that they want more common sense gun safety laws. Now, on that one, the president, I think, would do what he could. The things that I am standing for, the economic U-turn, the economic new beginning, whether it has to do with universal health care, tuition-free college, paid family leave, a guaranteed living wage, Millions of more Americans want that. This Bidenomics, everything's doing well. That the pre that the president is, that is the president's message this time applies to 20% of the American people, and that 20% are living on an island economically, surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. I feel that the Biden administration's argument at this time is such a redo in an almost potentially tragic way electorally, a kind of slow motion car crash that was the year 2016. He's basically saying what uh, uh, what Hillary said in 2016, which was, uh, let's continue with the success of the last eight years. And millions of people said, what success? I'm drowning here. So yeah. the president is saying, we've got a healthy economy and we're doing good. That is contrary to the visceral experience of millions and millions of Americans. So this idea that they have a good winning argument, I, I, I would ask anyone to just look at that logically. That is not a good winning argument. And there's not, it doesn't even come along with a promise to do anything differently. There's no promise there, even about a public option. There's no promise there about even revisiting the raised minimum wage. We have one third of American workers live on less than $15 an hour. Can't even find a place to live can't find an apartment in major cities in this country. And you've got people like AOC endorsing this and thinking this is going to help us because we're going to be unified in 2020. I think that's illogical, just completely illogical. I mean, in 2024. I think in order to get a lot of that agenda that you just described um, passed and made into law, it would take a pretty uh, significant structural changes, you know, just given the realities of the Senate, the filibuster, et cetera. Uh, you know, what are your feelings on 
um, you know, expanding the Supreme Court, getting rid of the Electoral College, uh, you know, D.C. statehood, all the kind of, I think, structural things that, uh, that progressives talk about being necessary to enact um, uh, the agenda. What are your feelings on that? Well, not all of those things are necessary to enact the agenda I just said. Enough progressives who have those, uh, who wish to vote for those things is what is what is necessary. You know, any president hopes that the House and the Senate is, you know, of their party and of the ilk of people who agree with them. But the left has to decide whether or not it's going to go for power at this point. This namby-pamby going along with the milquetoast stuff, this is not going to make it happen. Now, when you talk about the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has gone rogue. This is, I, I don't know any other way to say it. It is dominated by some corporate hacks. And yes, absolutely, if what needs to be considered is expanding the court, as president, I would wish to see this. And if, I, if, if, if I'm president and you've got a Senate, you know, where it's going to give you a problem in terms of something like raising the minimum wage or, um, or Medicare for all, then absolutely get rid of the filibuster. We are allowing these sclerotic traditions that were come up with by dead people, sometimes racist dead people, so that's why they came up with these things, and we are allowing them to hold us back. You know, when the president said during his uh, campaign that he would raise the minimum wage, and he did for federal workers, but when it came to putting it in the COVID relief bill, the, the parliamentarian said that it was not uh, was not okay. Can you imagine the Republicans allowing the parliamentarian to stop them? Can we get some spine here? No, that was convenient for a president who also knew that he had to make sure that the Chamber of Commerce wasn't too upset by him. Uh, by him, you know, the left has to decide: Are we going to have spine here? Are we going to really go for power? Or are we going to continue this chess game that is getting us nothing? Hmm. I mean, I think you're completely right. Uh, George Bush the second absolutely did fire his parliamentarian when it looked like they were going to stand in the way of his uh, oh, desire to drill in, never, in the Arctic. Yeah. The Republicans yeah. don't. And what they you're saying right now with the Freedom Caucus in the House, you know, is making many people recall the force the vote moment. They have and are choosing to largely shut down the Republican agenda until their particular demands are met, and it has not escaped the notice of many people on the left that the squad members had the exact same ability to do so in the early years of the Biden administration and chose instead to uh, try to work within the party uh, to get results. Uh, but I, I want to ask you about that, Marion, because this question of is it possible to be genuinely adversarial within the Democratic Party or not has been raised, especially as Cornell West has entered the race. And to some folks, the Bernie, the two Bernie campaigns and the way that the Democrat, the DNC chose to treat him in the context of those campaigns was evidence enough that the Democratic Party was never going to allow there to be anything approximating fairness for left candidates. They see the choice to not have a primary. They see the choice to reorder the primary schedule. They see the choice to shut down uh, debates. And they say, this is evidence of how much obstruction you're going to get within the Democratic Party, it's better to take this moment and the public energy around the ideas that you so eloquently laid out and you funnel people into alternative non-corporate parties that are less able to be corrupted in the way that the Democratic and Republican parties have been corrupted, precisely because there are limitations on uh, corporate funding, et cetera. What do you say to people who make that argument and who are looking to Cornell West as the left candidate? because not of, the, of you per se, but because of their skepticism that the Democratic Party is ever going to give you a fair hearing. That's their right. 
You know, third party voices were very important in American history. Abolition came from the abolitionist party. Women's suffrage came from the women's party. Uh, Social security came from the socialist party. Everybody has to follow their own conscience on where they can be most helpful. I personally have some, maybe it's a nostalgic romantic ideal about the Democratic Party because I'm old enough to remember a time when no matter what, you you could depend on the Democratic Party more than not. They were the unequivocal supporters of the working people of the United States. I think of myself as a Roosevelt Democrat. So I remember watching what happened to the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton. I remember when the Democratic Leadership Council uh, was formed. I remember when this fissure occurred. And I've seen what's happened since, as we all have. So they say, the corporatist establishment elite of the Democratic Party, that the progressives are trying to hijack the party. No, 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 no. They hijacked the party. We're Franklin and Eleanor. They would have a hard time even allowing uh, Franklin Roosevelt in today. So Franklin Roosevelt would be deciding whether or not to run third party. And at a certain point, he actually said to Wendell Wilkie, Franklin Roosevelt himself, because of a lot of the the pushback he was getting from some of the Southern senators, actually approached Wendell Wilkie about forming a third party. And Wendell Wilkie then actually died before they got too far in the conversation, but he had expressed some interest. So I understand it. For myself, I think these times are the, the stakes are too high. So I'm 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 standing within the Democratic Party, but I, you know, I don't have criticism for. I think we all need to judge each other less and appreciate and listen to each other more. Hmm. So if people, I hope that uh, a lot of those people, even who uh, plan to, if they're thinking they're going to vote for Cornell in the general, will vote for me in the primary, uh, because except on the issue of Ukraine, I think he and I are very aligned on things. Where are you different on the issue of Ukraine? Well, he is is very critical of any uh, any uh, U.S. support. And from from what I've read, I mean, I'm not trying to uh, uh, speak for him, but from what I've read, it seems to me a different uh, different conversation. Are you concerned that because so much of the uh, so many political independents at this time are motivated by that particular issue in Ukraine funding, that your being potentially closer to Biden than Cornell West or RFK Jr. on that issue makes it difficult for you to make the case for to an independent-minded person why they should go with you. And then the people who might agree with you on that issue might say, well, I'm going to choose Joe Biden and not, not switch horses midstream. Is there a lane for you being progress, a Bernie progressive except for this particular issue just because of how galvanizing it is to so many independent politicos right now? Well, the first thing I would point out is to me, it is very progressive to be anti-imperialist. And that means in my case, for me, Vladimir Putin's imperialism. So I don't think it's a non-progressive view. Do I realize that that's kind of where the progressive left has gone and that that's probably not good for me politically? Yeah. But what am I supposed to do? I'm not here to change my views so somebody likes me. At this point, you know, I'm here to speak the truth of my heart and my analysis as best as I can understand events. That's what I'm doing as a candidate and that's what I would do as president. Um, So yeah, I mean, I get it like, oh, something else for people. But a lot of those people are the same people who say, well, I don't like her because she's a woo-woo. I mean, for uh, for the honest critic, uh, they will they will hear my position and then decide for themselves by election day uh, whether or not that is a, a deal breaker for them. Hmm. I'm not well, you know what I mean. Sure. Uh, my, 
everything from my uh, from my historic record, as it were, of criticism of the of the military industrial complex, my stand for a U.S. Department of Peace, uh, my stands about Iraq, my stands about Afghanistan. So, um, uh, if, I, I, you know, you, you, I can't control how other people hear me. I can't control how, what other people decide. And hey, that's democracy. The one thing I can control is whether people are given the option of a fundamental alternative to the neoliberal politics that dominates our political system today, mm -hmm. including the corporatist establishment democratic elite. And where people go with that, um, in relation even to my... Uh, uh, to my sense of what is going on uh, with Ukraine is up to the voter. All I can do is be honest. Miriam, I want to ask you about um, COVID. Uh, it's an issue that I think really animates in particular the people who watch this show. So I want to make sure you have an opportunity to address um, those policies. We have done a lot of reporting on uh, both, you know, policies during the pandemic of lockdowns and mandates, et cetera. Um, we, we asked um, RFK Jr. a lot about that when he was on the show. So, I, you know, I want to make sure you have the same opportunity to address some of those things, uh, particularly both on, you know, what, what is your view of, uh, of what of Joe Biden's COVID vaccine mandate policy? You know, he tried to require uh, millions of workers to have to get uh, the COVID vaccine to continue working, and then that policy was struck by the Supreme Court. That, and you know, what is your current understanding of of the of the reality or the possibility that um, that U.S. funding had something to do with the lab leak, which caused COVID in the first place? I think the question of whether U.S. Uh, funding was involved in the Wuhan lab is a very important question. You know, healthy skepticism to me is part of good citizenship. So I don't have a problem with the American people asking questions. I have a problem with the U.S. government not answering them. Mm. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of questions about all that, and I think it's healthy that people are asking. You know, if you talk about the sort of dark side of this kind of conspiratorial uh, sensibility that has taken root among so many Americans, if there was greater transparency to begin with, if people had, had more of a sense that they could trust their government to begin with, then I don't think that there would be the creation of this blowback in the, blowback in the form of, of some very... Um, uh, dysfunctional uh, conspiratorial mm -hmm. thinking. So yes, we should do everything possible to find out absolutely what happened in that lab. And uh, obviously what the Chinese had to do with it clearly just becomes obvious. But uh, the question of did any funding, you know, we know about Obama uh, shutting down uh, at one point, you know, the, the sort of famous story that we've all been told that that Obama had asked about a certain study, said, could the virus escape? He was told, yes, he said, shut it down, which is very good. There continues to be a question, did anybody go rogue and, and, and go against the president's wishes? We don't know. I have no problem, however, with uh, there being investigative uh, journalism around this. Um, in terms of the mandates, I think it's important to remember that a lot of the, uh, the things that uh, the president said were get a test or have a Q-tip up your nose. I didn't have a problem. You know, I do have a problem being told uh, I have to take a shot, but I don't necessarily have a problem with someone saying to me, I put a Q-tip up your nose if, in fact, someone feels that there is a, uh, a public health concern. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. I do think that testing was under-emphasized by both the Biden administration and those looking for alternative 
less invasive ways to uh, mm -hmm. stop the spread uh, than uh, vaccine mandates. Uh, as we wrap up here, I just want to ask you, Marianne, it occurs to me that so many people know you and, and, and came to be familiar with you through your work in uh, a very different space, outside of the political space, um, as a spiritual advisor, as someone who has shown a lot of insight in terms of the, the nature of our community and our interpersonal interactions and our spiritual life. And there has been uh, a lot of interest in the case of uh, Andrew Tate and some of these uh, figures in the manosphere, uh, so-called manosphere, uh, Jordan Peterson and the like, um, who have been offering a prescription to young men in particular as to how to feel more centered, whole, and happy in a world that is, by many metrics, less hospitable to uh, young men in particular. Tucker Carlson, uh, just earlier this week, did a lengthy interview with Andrew Tate, where they talked about any number of things. Andrew Tate, obviously, is a controversial figure who is being charged currently uh, uh, with uh, alleged sex trafficking. And these are the kind of people that are attracting an audience in part because they are offering some kind of answer to a spiritual void that young men in particular are, are facing. And I wonder what prescription you would offer and what you make of the appeal of some of these figures in the manosphere. Well, I never heard Andrew Tate speak to a spiritual void. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I never heard Andrew Tate speak to a spiritual void. And I don't believe that, that um, supporting men in finding their genuine masculine should ever be at the expense of women. So I never saw Andrew Tate's prescriptions to men, either spiritual or um, of value to women whatsoever. In terms of Jordan Peterson, when he began, you know, all the kind of be accountable, grow up, get a spine, make your bed, I thought was kind of cool. But he has moved in a direction uh, that's just, uh, there's nothing spiritual about the type of stuff that he's talking about now, including his attacks on me, Jordan. So, you know, I- uh, <laughs> What has what uh, Jordan I, Peterson said to you? I, I might have missed that. Oh, oh yeah, go go check it out. He's he's not my biggest fan, apparently. Hmm. Hmm. He's a oh, big right now. That's sad. Uh, before we let you go, what do you, um, I wanted to ask you about the same kind of general question trajectory. Um, but young women, there's a lot of conversation about social media and if it, is it harmful to teenage girls or I guess to people in general. Um, obviously, we're all, it's not going away anytime soon. We're all on our phones a lot. Um, I have been wary of this being framed as like so bad. I think there are elements of moral panic to the way people describe how social media has changed our society. I think there's positive and negative. Um, but, you know, do you do you have concerns about young people and how on their phone they are and how that, you know, has to do with their self-actualization? Yeah, not just young people, all of us. I mean, the addictive qualities of these things, who among us? I myself am saying sometimes, why do you have your phone in your hand? Why do you need your phone in your hand? You know, I, I think we all have uh, issues uh, to look at there, and people understand the addictive quality, the way the algorithms are worked, et cetera. In terms of children, yes, absolutely, there's a problem here. You know, uh, the public school system of Seattle, Washington, is now suing the tech companies because of a causation that has been established, not a correlation, but a causation between the number of hours that young people whose prefrontal cortexes are not even fully developed yet, uh, the numbers of hours that they spend and their focus issues, their sleep issues, their learning issues. There's a serious problem here. 
Um, and I think it's a good thing that Americans are asking these serious questions. You don't get deep answers until you ask deep questions. Now, as you said, Robbie, there's very positive aspects of social media, very positive aspects of the internet. No one is denying that. And it's not going away. But I think that, you know, just like other generations came to understand, you know, smoking all the time uh, is, is not so good for you. I think we're coming to understand um, not only in terms of the use of these things, in terms of the algorithms and the addictive qualities, uh, but some of the other issues about having those things close to our brains or whatever. People are, are um, we're in the middle. You know, there's so much going on in our society right now, which feels chaotic, but which is actually ultimately good, I think, questions coming up, things that we're looking at. But I think more than anything, even though I do believe there should be regulation of tech companies in many cases, et cetera, I think a lot of this is going to have to do with personal change. You know, that when you talked about my career, you know, I, Martin Luther King said, we need quantitative changes in our circumstances and qualitative shifts in our souls. We need governmental changes. We need policy changes to align uh, with the better angels of our nature. We need policy changes to bring us back into alignment with the democratic and the humanitarian principles of our own declaration of independence as opposed to short-term profit maximization for U.S. Uh, major U.S. Corp and multinational corporate interests. There's no doubt about that. But I think also people realize that a lot of the changes have to occur inside our own hearts. Uh, how we behave, uh, our lifestyle decisions, how we treat each other. It's a big both and, not an either, either or. That's that's how massive this phase transition is, uh, not just in our country, but on the planet today. Marianne Williamson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is set to testify next week before the Republican-led House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government regarding its role in censoring free speech online. The insurgent candidate is expected to weigh in on the White House's attempt to censor him over his COVID-19 vaccine position and commentary, which they deemed misinformation. If you recall, RFK Jr. was personally named in a ruling federal judge Terry Do Doty handed down last week that limits communication between the Biden administration and social media companies. The ruling exposed how a former head of the COVID-19 response team at the White House reached out to Twitter requesting the social media company remove an anti-COVID vaccine tweet by Kennedy. Mm. Yeah, there was a, a lot of that, obviously. We've seen it on Twitter. We've seen it on uh, Facebook, those, all those emails from government health officials, the White House, et cetera. Um, so here, I, I'll be very interested. I think I, we can all guess the kind of things RFK Jr. is going to say. But uh, yes, there was evidence that his speech was among the speech targeted by the government's combating misinformation um, efforts, uh, you know, people who raised questions about the efficacy of vaccines, the, ne the necessity of vaccines for everyone, people like um, uh, Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Koldorf, who had, I think had milder criticisms of vaccines than Robert F. Kennedy Jr., but said it's, you know, it's not the case that every single person needs necessarily the COVID vaccine. That was the kind of speech um, that, got you, uh, that got you kicked off social media, again, at the government's behest. Yeah. All those meetings, all those, you know, why isn't Facebook doing more? This, the, the, remember the serial spreaders of misinformation, how it's 10 accounts spreading like 80, 90% of, of uh, the misinformation, RFK Jr.'s was deemed one of those accounts. Mm. So, you know, I think that this kind of um, hearing and speaking at it 
will generate a lot of interest uh, online in the people who have been very focused on misinformation, obviously, as a core complaint about the Democratic Party, broadly speaking. Um, I am curious about how this is going to play outside of the 20 percent or so that are interested in RFK Jr. precisely for this reason. And I bring this up because he is running as a, a Democrat. Democrat. Um, and while he is very visible and very popular online and in the kind of online media spaces that he's engaged with, which are, I think it's fair to say, and I don't mean this as a criticism anyway, but not especially politically left-leaning. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of people who are kind of alternative crypto guys and in that kind of online space. He has sat down with people like Aaron Maté, who are more firmly on the left. But generally speaking, he's been pitching himself to a more uh, politically independent crowd. How does he get over that 20% ceiling uh, outside of that particular group? And, and do moments like this that give you a lot of public exposure, testifying at a hearing um, in a situation where you have been personally victimized at the core of an issue that's very important to some people, does that help him ultimately grow his, the share of Democrats that he needs to vote for him in the primary? Is he able, going to be able to expand his appeal on issues outside of kind of online censorship and COVID, perhaps more economic material issues, if he pigeonholes himself as maybe being exclusively interested in these more niche, I would argue personally that there are very important issue areas, but I think on the whole more niche issue areas. Right. I mean, obviously he's going to be substantially focusing on those issues at this hearing because that's the, right. the subject of it. I think it'll be interesting to see how the Democrats handle mm -hmm. him. I mean, I think I can guess how it's going to go because... I mean, So-called journalists. Well, right, because we saw how the Democrats responded to um, very fair-minded um, criticism of the government's approach made by Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, uh, you know, people who are also... Um, I don't know Michael Shellberger's exact trajectory of views, but I think he classified himself as a Democrat at one point, um, or, or certainly not a conservative, you know, saying that climate change is real, but, and is all that kind of stuff. Matt Taibbi, a, a progressive journalist for a progressive magazine for a, a number of years, um, and the Democratic treatment of them was, you know, you're basically to treat them as right-wing actors and to totally disregard the criticism they were making. You know, this is especially uh, coming from Stacey Plaskett, the Virgin Islands delegate um, who, you know, in between um, attempts to get Jeffrey Epstein to <laughs> know, cater her birthday party or something. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that was a smear, uh, but we, you can watch our previous, one of our previous videos, look for it. Where she is clearly all about trying to get him involved with her campaign financially, even at the point where it's obvious, what is well known to everyone, that he is uh, an alleged serial um, abuser of yeah. underage women. Uh, she, you know, has the audacity to suggest to Taibi that he should be jailed for getting like a small um, uh, typo, essentially, in the Twitter files. So I, I have to imagine they're going to handle RFK Jr. the same way. It'll be interesting, I guess, on his end, if he decides to, you know, rather than use this as a moment to litigate, like, the actual science of vaccines to just kind of focus on the censorship aspect of it. But I don't know. Oh, I have some suspicions. The, the thing about RFK Jr. that's so interesting and why he does so well, I think, on longer format podcasts is that 
his response to folks that are skeptical of his own views on vaccines is to say, okay, tell me why, let's talk it through. Yeah. And that is frustrating for folks in a, in a traditional media environment because they only have the seven minutes until commercial. Uh, and it is also frustrating for some people in a longer environment if they're not prepared to, to go spend study the next two for hours study. talking about vaccines because we're going to spend the next two hours talking about vaccines if the, if you really want to get him on that because he's he's prepared and he's very well informed right even so if I, you think he's totally wrong right so I he, he has answers even if you think they're wrong and very few people who have I think the expertise or the time to really go through and determine what's accurate and what's not have ever really engaged with him mm -hmm. so what I anticipate will happen and we will obviously follow up and see for sure is that they will say you were put on a list, this misinformation list, because he said X, Y, and Z, that was wrong. And he will say, well, why is it wrong? Tell me why you think it's wrong. And they will say, well, this expert told me that it was wrong. These authorities said it was wrong. And he will say, well, here's my, my pushback against those authorities and why they've missed the mark. And I suspect they're not going to want him to elaborate. They're going to try to cut him off and not let him talk. And it is going to be contentious. Obviously, the Republicans have invited him here to do this. You know, we're bearing the lead a little bit, um, despite him ostensibly being a Democrat and running in the Democratic um, uh, uh, primaries. You know, I, I think it's fair to, you know, point out the, the Republican interest in this is a little, is you know, let's boost someone who is running against Joe Biden. Sure. Um, but of course, Joe Biden should actually debate. He, has, he should have every opportunity to do so. Um, he can rise to the to the challenge and yeah. actually take RFK Jr. on, but he's decided not to, or the Democratic National Committee has decided not to on his behalf. So uh, so here we are. Yeah, you raise a good point. I mean, he is going to, presumably, the Republicans will let him talk ad nauseum yes. about what his theories are. And I, I think... Liberals are going to be very unhappy with that. They're going to be very, very unhappy with that because now here's like a huge platform for you to spread what they characterize as misinformation. They know this is coming. And so I would, I'm also curious to see whether or not they choose to actually dig in and engage. Because to the extent that there are aspects of his argument that I think are flimsier than others. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity for them to actually, on a public on the public stage, confront him with what they think is the right evidence or contrary evidence to what he he's looking into, and perhaps effectively constrain some of his rhetoric. Not because because he's someone who himself will say, "Well, tell me where I'm wrong," and I'm happy to mm -hmm. concede the point if, in fact, you have good evidence. If there is good evidence, this is where it could play out in a very high profile scenario in a way that is frankly, productive for the broader discourse. Do I think it's likely that the Democrats are going to take that approach as opposed to generally saying, uh, R.F. Kennedy Jr., you are a serial misinformationist and a uh, vaccine <laughs> skeptic who is wildly indifferent to the public health interest of the average, average American. That being said, and experts, to <laughs> experts say that letting you continue to talk right now will kill 7.2 people every 18 minutes. Yeah. 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 Uh, imagine a, a nuanced, thoughtful debate on an important policy subject in the halls of Congress. Yeah, I know people don't think that he's worth 
debating. And I understand the arguments that, you know, you shouldn't have to debate. Everybody has an opinion on everything everywhere. But the fact of him having a platform with or without yeah. you and people trusting and having confidence in him with or without you should help, help, help folks that disagree with him to understand that the only way to get around this is to actually engage. That's it. There's no, you can't de-platform him out of existence. He is a Kennedy, he is running for president, and there are a million and one platforms that exist independently in the United States of America and beyond that are happy to give him a fair hearing. And those platforms, frankly, have a wider reach than MSNBC does at this point. Absolutely. So this is your chance. And so we'll see what the Democrats make of it. We shall see more rising right after this. Green Party 2024 presidential candidate Cornell West weighed in on this week's high-stakes NATO summit meeting, where he called for an end to the alliance. In a press release issued Wednesday, West argued a path for peace is needed, not one for a NATO membership, further writing, quote, instead of seeking a negotiated solution to Russia's criminal invasion provoked by NATO expansion and nuclear-capable missiles, NATO's been shunning peace talks and threatening Russia, violating its 1990 pledge not to move one inch to the east. He further added a bigger focus should be addressing global poverty rather than warfare. Here to discuss West's take is Max Blumenthal, an editor from The Gray Zone. Welcome, Max. Good to see you. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, when Cornel West tweeted this out, uh, his response from uh, noted anti-war advocate Keith Olbermann was, F off. Uh, I expect that your feelings about uh, West's uh, position here are a little bit different. Is he right to want an end to NATO? Well, Cornell West speaks for the global majority that understands that NATO represents 10% of the world's population, mostly a wealthy white population, and it consumes over 55% of the world's military budget. And what it uses that military budget for is aggressive action that has nothing to do with a defensive alliance protecting the North Atlantic. I mean, let's go back to 1999 when NATO became, attacked the first sovereign country in Europe after World War II in Yugoslavia. The Chinese embassy was bombed. 48 churches were destroyed. Destru uh, electric power stations were attacked. It was a completely illegal war. And then NATO continued its march into the North Atlantic territory of Afghanistan, launching a forever war. Then it moved into Libya, uh, which culminated with the murder and uh, sodomizing on camera by Al-Qaeda militants under NATO air cover of an African leader and the destruction of Libya and transformation of that country into a base for ISIS and Al-Qaeda for several years, as well as slave auctions. This is what NATO has become. And what we've seen at Vilnius is NATO attempting to expand into the Indo-Pacific with a global NATO that's going to bring German troops into uh, training sessions, 30,000 of them with Australia. They attempted to bring a command center to Tokyo, Japan, which actually rankled the French president, Emmanuel Macron, who said uh, this has nothing to do with the North Atlantic. So. What NATO is doing is actually upsetting the security architecture of Europe that prevailed before the Cold War. And it's also done so by expanding constantly towards Russian borders in violation of a stated agreement between Mikhail Gorbachev and the George H.W. Bush administration, something that no, none other than George Kennan, the architect of the U.S. national security state, warned would be a recipe for World War III. And here we are on the brink of that right now. 
But I guess how would you respond to the argument that, look, we can't go back in time. I mean, I think I agree with the things you're pointing out, that these were bad policy decisions, that the expansion of NATO um, exacerbated, you know, the situation that Ukraine now finds itself in, and that, you know, leaving Ukraine dangling, like, well, maybe we'll have them join NATO, but not, but actually not have them join NATO led to this middle ground where Russia felt aggrieved upon, but could actually invade Ukraine because they weren't in NATO. Uh, so I, I take all of that, but you know, for the sake of um, of argument, what would you respond to the concern that you know disbanding NATO now would just allow Russia to invade per perhaps more of its neighbors? Well, disbanding NATO would threaten um, local local elites in places like Finland or Sweden who are now linking their fate to that of the United States, which is far away, rather than to their traditional partners in their own neighborhood. Finland has traditionally been a neutral country and had relations with the Soviet Union and Russia, as did Sweden. So what NATO, what NATO is doing is actually forcing these countries into alliances with powerful military superpowers far away and increasing the risk of war in the neighborhood. That's the problem here. And I actually, for the first time, kind of feel sorry for Vladimir Zelensky. I mean, look at what he did. He broke negotiations in April 2022 with Vladimir Putin that could have prevented this slaughterhouse. Boris Johnson was parachuted into Kiev on NATO's behalf, and he agreed to break the negotiations and shovel tens of thousands of the flower of Ukraine's youth, and now 50-something men, in into a slaughterhouse to fulfill neoconservative fantasies of bludgeoning and balkanizing Russia. And all he got at Vilnius was a pat on the back and a few lousy cluster bombs. He couldn't even be a, become a member of the big boys club. And Zelensky is understandably furious because he now sees what his function is and what the function of Ukraine, the sick, poor and heavily corrupted man of Europe is, which is to just serve as a proxy for the rest of NATO without receiving the benefits or the defense of other NATO countries, according to Article 5. Ukrainians will die for the geopolitical gambits and ambitions of people in Norway, England, and Washington primarily. And that's mm -hmm. a tra and it's not a tragedy, it's actually a crime. Hmm. Max, can you weigh in on uh, Sweden's membership? As I understand it, Erdogan Turkey had been opposed uh, and they uh, backed off of that opposition in exchange for some concessions. Can you help us understand what the negotiations were like that ultimately increased the runway for Sweden's admission into NATO? For me, it's more interesting as it relates to Turkey because this is a mid-level power that was playing both sides, was playing BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Group you know, the Eurasianist power block on the one hand and uh, NATO on the other. And Erdogan has stepped uh, into the NATO realm to get some favors, like 18 F-16s, hmm. uh, probably favorable visa treatment for Turkish citizens within the EU. He's not going to get EU membership and uh, lots of other military goodies. And this is at a time when Erdogan is under diplomatic pressure from the NATO states, accusing him of being anti-democratic. Um, and then Sweden, what it's done is broken its historic neutrality. Sweden also happens to be one of the world's top arms exporters. But I think you could draw a straight line from the assassination of Olaf Palm, the social democratic uh, Swedish leader in 1986, 
probably by Mossad or Afrikaner, uh, South African agents because of his role in fostering ties between Sweden and the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the African National Congress, and all sorts of groups across the global south, but also his ties, his, his role in maintaining Sweden's neutrality. You can draw a straight line between that and the Sweden of today, which has completely cast its lot with Washington at a time when U.S. empire is de in decline. And I think it's a very dangerous move for Sweden to make. Russia is a lot closer to Sweden than the United States is. Well, but I guess that's, again, that's the question. Do we want, from the U.S. perspective, do we want, I, I think, a, right, a Sweden, a Finland, et cetera, that are, that are neutral powers and they're, that are not furthering the militaristic aims of any superpower is great, but in reality, wouldn't some kind of breakdown of NATO just make them, just position them as being reliant on Russia instead of the U.S.? And would that really be something we want? Well, I don't think Russia seeks the dependence the way the United States does, simply because it doesn't have the military and economic capacity uh, to impose its will on those countries. But it would alter their political and security infrastructure to actually have real workable treaties with their neighbors. Well, what they should do is take a look at what happened to Ukraine. Ukraine was NATOized since 2014. The U.S implemented a coup in 2014 in Ukraine. It ran the whole thing, determined who would be in government, then it brought in hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons, fueled a civil war that pushed its way up to Russia's border and tempted a Russian invasion. Now the U.S. through NATO is going to militarize Finland right on Russia's border, 800 kilometers of border right there. Will the U.S. get involved and actually defend that border? No, because look at what it did to Ukraine. It has completely left them out in the cold. And so I think it's better for these countries to actually have treaties and to treat Europe as a power of its own instead of to adopt this transatlanticist mentality where everything comes back to Washington and Washington sets the so-called rules-based order, which simply means you follow the rules and we give the orders. Max, thank you so much for joining us. Your perspective is really uh, valuable. Thanks a lot, Brianna. Tennessee Congressman Tim Burchett announced on Twitter yesterday that an amendment he wrote about unidentified aerial phenomenon will be included in the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act. In his tweet, he said, quote, my amendment requires the Department of Defense to declassify any documents and records relating to publicly known sightings of UAPs that do not compromise the national security of the United States. Burchett made the rounds on TV news programs this week, claiming the DOD is hiding what it knows and even pressuring witnesses to refrain from testifying on the matter before Congress. Well, here's Republican Senator Marco Rubio talking to Fox News about whether claims about UFOs are true or not. Let's watch. You're in on the Foreign Affairs Committee and you're really involved in foreign affairs. There have been a lot of articles lately about UFOs. I know this is this question is a little out there. Is there any truth to any of this? Well, we don't know. All I've said is we have people that have very high clearances both today and in the past who did really important work for our government or continue to do important work for the government 
who have come forward with some claims about the U.S. having in the past recovered exotic materials and then reverse engineered those materials to make advances in our own defenses and technologies. That's the claim they make. Now, I don't know if those claims are true or not. What I do know is that one of two things is happening here. Either we, either they're telling the truth, and that is something that obviously would be uh, the, the biggest story in human history, or we have people in really important positions of government who are crazy and who are out there making up stories <laughs> and, and who are still in positions of importance. Either one is a big problem. So we've got to figure out which one of these two it is because uh, the, the second one in particular would be very troubling. But we don't, all we know... I mean, there, to be clear, there's a third option. It's, it's not, I don't think that all of these people making all these claims are crazy or evil or something, but people, people make errors, think they see things. This describes a lot of Americans. They're not crazy. It's just we ha you see something or you don't have an explanation for it. It's not obvious to you what the truth is. That doesn't mean you're crazy. That's a very common experience. I don't, I don't think there's like some conspiracy I don't think there's a conspiracy to, uh, of crazy people in the government trying to make you think aliens are real. Well, look, I am agnostic look. on this. I think that anything could be true. I am a little concerned that a sincere appetite to know more about what our government knows and potential evidence of life off world is being exploited to distract from other more domestic concerns. That is uh, something that can happen whether or not aliens are real, whether or not the government is knowing, knows something. The focus on it at this time, I think, deserves some scrutiny. I mean, the focus can be on multiple things. To this Tim Burchett, this can be his Yeah, we can all say that, but that's and... not how it works. We all know how it works. We all know that the, 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 the government will drop news on a Friday because our attention span mm -hmm. is what it is, and everyone's gone for the weekend, and we don't end up covering it. And then by Monday, nobody cares. We know that the government will come out with some nonsensical explosive report to try to bury a story that is less um, advantageous to it. We, we, like, we know that this happens all the time. So uh, if you're going to have skepticism about what, whether the government is being transparent about alien spacecraft, I think you also have to have skepticism about why so many government officials are excited to talk about this issue right now. Now, I'm not, again, I'm agnostic about that, but I do think it's worth something that's just, it's worth raising in this moment. Now, I also got to point out that having this amendment, Tim Burch's amendment, that requires the Defense Department to declassify anything. Does nothing because of the Wait national security exception. Because, yeah. <laughs> Do not compromise, that do not compromise the national security of the United States yeah, is a hole big enough pointless. to drive a Mack truck through. Yeah. So it's worth as much as this piece of paper. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we just did the, uh, you know, they were supposed to declassify all the COVID information they had about the origins of the pandemic. That was a bipartisan piece of legislation. Joe Biden signed it. They passed the deadline, nothing. And then they put out the most insultingly stupid document I have ever read mm -hmm. that was, again, just summarizing why they think they know what they know without telling you what the actual intelligence is. That's what we wanted to see. And they yep. didn't, so they, they, are, they are so opposed, the government bureaucracy, to real transparency and accountability, it just, it, Force you have to force it on them, but if you give them any out, they will take that out. And national security is the biggest out yeah, there is. That's that's the trump card. It means part. nothing. It's the same excuse that is driving the failure to disclose. 
the Kennedy files that were supposed to be mm -hmm. released in 2017 under the Trump administration. Some of them were, but this critical mass still has not been released. Biden released some, but again, the critical mass sure. has not been released. And the justification is national security concerns for a president who was assassinated 60 years ago. It's, it's getting outrageous. Um, so again, I think that if you're going to attach something like this to must-pass legislation, um, that's a good strategy to try to get something out. But the willingness to do so, the yeah. ease with which he's been able to do so, probably has some bears some relationship to the fact that this is meaningless. Same thing with that. Uh, we, we mentioned it, but the judge's decision on the social media case, right? You know, don't government agencies can't communicate with social media platforms for the purpose of censorship anymore, unless they're trying to communicate about you know a foreign-based threat. Well, that again, that's national security justification. That's everything. Yeah, exactly. The government has that down. So, you know, don't get, we, I don't want people to get false hope or deluded into thinking that, um, that just because a politician is saying good things and saying they're going to deliver accountability and transparency, that it's actually going to happen because it, frankly, it's demoralizing, but it never does. Right. I mean, look, the um, ability of the intelligence um, agencies to operate so independently uh, and so secretively is an ongoing problem, one that, frankly, JFK was scrutinizing uh, at the time, shortly before his death, in which some people, including RFK Jr., have attributed to the fact that why the reason why he was uh, assassinated in the first place, an effort to sign this executive order that ratcheted back the power of the intelligence agencies in the military-industrial complex. So. I admire an interest in trying to get more clarity, more transparency from government. I admire the efforts to try to get to limit the powers of the FBI and the CIA and to defund those organizations and to force more transparency. But I think it is, you know, whether whatever whatever you think about the, the circumstances of the Kennedy assassination, it is clear that these intelligence agencies have a lot of power and very much resist threats to their uh, authority. And if you're going to do it, it's going to take, I think, a lot more than some of the congressional hearings and uh, amendments uh, with huge exceptions in them. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's disappointing, but it's not just talking about these issues. We need like actual reform, and it never seems to happen. Yeah, and uh, whistleblower protection, because whistleblower we're going to learn protection. a lot that way. All right, more rising right after this. The Secret Service has ended its investigation into the cocaine found in the West Wing of the White House, obviously. It didn't have fingerprints, and there was no suspect, no leads, so that's that, according to two sources familiar with the investigation uh, talking to CNN. The Secret Service also issued an official statement saying that there's no surveillance footage found that provided investigative leads or other ways for investigators to identify who the, co the cocaine might have belonged to. And while the White House did not immediately respond to a request for comment to the Hill, Republican Congressman Tim Burchett reportedly told the New York Post this as he stormed out of a briefing on the matter, where he said, they have facial identification, they have, y'all know you can't go in there without giving your social security number. They decided it's just some weekend visitor. That's bogus. Nobody's buying that at all. Burchett also said that an official announcement that the probe had wrapped up would come Friday. Uh, yeah, you have to tell 
the White House about yourself before you can waltz in there. They have visitor logs. They know who comes and goes into the building, I would presume. And if they don't, that seems to be a significant security issue in and of itself. So the question is, this isn't, it sounds like, a generalized visitor area, like if you go on a White House tour, this is for visitors in the West Wing. So I presume that's like a smaller subset of people than everyone that's entering the White House. And you're saying that in that smaller subset of mm -hmm. people, it's impossible to know who actually came through that space within the, la the days surrounding or the day surrounding the bag of cocaine having been found. It does... Look, I think that the idea that this was uh, under Biden's campaign, uh, cocaine and all of that is conjecture and not substantiated, but the White House's handling of this between not really taking any questions on it, being evasive, and now shutting down this investigation, claiming that it's just impossible mm -hmm. for the White House and all of the Secret Service engaged in safety in one of the most secure places in the entire country can't track who, who, who brought an illicit substance into the White House. What if they had brought poison? What if they had brought a gun? I mean, what what is going on there with the security protocols? And this just raises more questions to me. There should be an editorial cartoon of like all investigator, like government investigators, you know, pouring over, um, you know, blowing up January 6th footage to find, oh, there's another person who <laughs> maybe was there. And just like, there's a bag of cocaine left in the middle of the hallway. And just, they're just like stepping over. Excuse me, you're in the way for my workstation to do more uh, surveillance of the American populace. So yeah, I understand why this just sounds totally ridiculous. Again, it's not, it's not actually a big issue. No, of course I not. And I don't care. We agree that it should be legal, legal and that it should be a non-issue. Go live your life. Um, but it is illegal. And right. Joe Biden has fought very yeah, hard Joe Biden to make thinks it, it should illegal, be illegal. Right? Yes. And we're living in a context where his own son has gotten mm -hmm. a soft touch from the criminal justice system having broken federal law and filling out this gun mm -hmm. registration form when he was under the influence declaring that he wasn't or when he was, you know, uh, uh, struggling with addiction, mm -hmm. when he wasn't supposed to be a drug user during that time. And I, I, it's the, the hypocrisy of it, the, mm -hmm. the act of not caring in this, in this circumstance, um, when you have been such a zealot about enforcing drug laws in other parts of your life, is galling. Moreover, it's just implausible. Either you have terrible security at the White House, I'm sorry, or there is something that is being suppressed here. Now, I can understand a world where they say we don't want to stigmatize whoever brought this in. It's being handled privately. We found who the culprit is, and we're just not going to tell you about it. I, I would accept. I would kind of accept that. You know, it's being handled How with the police nice of force. Them. Well, it's being handled with the yes. authorities. It doesn't have to be a national issue every time somebody is arrested for a cocaine possession. But the fact that that is not even what the argument is. It, it, it breeds suspicion. It does, including with, uh, you know, Donald Trump, who a couple of days ago, I believe, accused uh, uh, Joe Biden of himself using cocaine. Here it is. Uh, Trump uh, claimed that they pump him up. That's a quote from Trump uh, with mm -hmm. cocaine uh, in order to get Biden to be more energetic in speeches. So uh, obviously that's made up speculation that isn't substantiated in any way. That's just Trump being Trump. But it's going to lead people to draw to come to those kinds of conclusions the more ambiguity is around this baggy incident. I am uh, flying, traveling by plane to Memphis today. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be going through 
the intense airport security, which I just love so much when they <laughs> take apart your suitcase and they pick through your all your little soaps and shampoos and they wonder, what's this box of things? I'm like, these are my board games. Please leave them alone. <laughs> Where they do the, the stupidest thing of all, the you know, the hand thing? Yeah, where they swipe for chemicals or whatever. What what are they? I think it's for like gunpowder residue. But what sure. if I handle gun? What if I have guns for a living? What I, if I, I don't handle gunpowder? I think it's just that. I think, I think it's, it's for if you've constructed BS. like a like a bomb maybe to bring on the plane. I don't I know. Think it's dumb. I'm mean, saying it, it's a miserable experience for me and millions of other people uh, who fly all the time. It's all dumb. It should be shut down. That's what that would be my first. Yeah. No, I hear you. I I, I'm curious because down. I don't have as I much. Experience traveling with board games as you obviously do. Uh-huh. Are there certain games that tend to trigger scrutiny from TSA more than other games? I think it's just me that triggers scrutiny. <laughs> I have a suspicious demeanor, and um, I'm not I'm not very pleasant. There, there, there's a grown man this. with a candy man uh, <laughs> in his in a suitcase. Well, I don't I don't look as suspicious as you know an, an old woman in a wheelchair who inevitably they you know drag them out Sorry. of their accommodations and pat them down aggressively. Uh, it, well, I, I, what's that quote from that comedian that if Al Qaeda has radicalized the women in wheelchairs to be suicide bombers, <laughs> they deserve to win. All right, I, I could. Sorry, push back TSA get... brings me at my most outraged. Uh, libertarian. Well, you're not the only person expressing uh, some outrage here. Here's another House Republican, Marjorie Taylor Greene, speaking out on the cocaine issue. Let's watch. Concern here is American citizens every single day go through drug tests as part of their employment um, for their jobs. This is a common practice. Uh, uh, just speaking with the Secret Service now, my question to them was they were able to narrow down a list of approximately 500 people that had left a small bag of cocaine in a cubby. Now these are cubbies that are um, controlled by the administration, not by the Secret Service when they enter into the foyer off the West executive entrance. Uh, this, This cocaine was found there. So they were able to bring the list, narrow it down to approximately 500 people. My question to them was, have they drug tested this list of 500 potential suspects that brought an illegal substance, a drug, cocaine, into the White House? Their answer was no, and that they're unwilling to do so. Uh, it makes no sense to me whatsoever why they would not follow through on one simple task, and that is to drug test a list of 500 people that they have um, that are potential suspects for this, when the American people uh, every single day go through drug tests in order to do a job, a job, by the way, that brings them a paycheck where they have to pay their taxes. And guess what? Their tax. Well, yeah, what she just uh, lashed onto at the end, I agree with, I, I don't want to, dr- no, we're not going to drug test, but I don't want to drug test the people we're drug testing now. Yeah. I don't want drugs to be illegal. I don't I, want any, any of this. Yeah, I agree with her point about the hypocrisy, the of hypocrisy it, but I would ratchet sure. it in the other direction. other direction. We should not be drug testing most of the people that are being drug tested. people alone. Yeah, not that because we drug test other people, we should also be drug testing all these people in the White House. I mean, do you remember the scandal at the beginning of the Joe Biden um, uh, administration where at some point during the uh, campaign, if I recall correctly, he said he was going to decriminalize uh, marijuana. And when he there was staff were being hired because of the representation that Biden was going to be kind of a drug-friendly administration, they answered honestly on their 
employment forms that if they had used marijuana, which in many places like D.C. is legal, but it's not legal federally. And a bunch of folks were let go at the beginning of the Biden administration because they were honest on their forms because they thought they were signing up to work for a guy who actually was going to deschedule, de decriminalize marijuana, and, and it didn't pan out that way. So um, I think the point about hypocrisy and Joe Biden just having a real personal yeah. issue with drugs. Demo there's no excuse for Democrats having dragged their feet on these issues. Um, huge majorities of people want these many of these drugs decriminalized. Uh, understand Republicans understand that this is now this is a mismatch. Like let the states decide what they want to decide, and without having the law in conflict with federal law. I mean, this is it's just a no-brainer. It's insane. We can't get we can't do any we can't fix anything in this country. It would just be so in, so obvious to um, to just not have a federal policy that is in conflict with what states decide to do on their own. Yeah. It's just so obvious. Yeah, five, I found the article, by the way, five staffers were let go over marijuana use uh, after, uh, this was from Jen Psaki, at the time, uh, White House press secretary, mm -hmm. uh, had said, we announced a few weeks ago that the White House had worked with the security service to update the policies to ensure that past marijuana use wouldn't automatically disqualify staff from serving in the White House. Uh, as a result, more people who would not have in the past with the same level uh, of recent drug use are able to serve. However, there were still five people that were not captured by this attempt to be a little bit more lenient here with these policies that were let go because they did the crime of actually being honest about the fact that they legally used uh, marijuana in their localities before joining the administration. Very, very stupid, all of it. More rising right after this. Vice President Kamala Harris is being roasted on the internet for trying to explain artificial intelligence to a group of labor and civil rights leaders on Wednesday. Let's watch. And I think the first part of this issue that should be articulated is AI is kind of a fancy thing. It's, first of all, it's two letters. It means artificial intelligence. But ultimately what it is, is it's about machine learning. And so the machine is taught. And part of the issue here is what information is going into the machine that will then determine, and, and we can predict then, if we think about what, machine, what information is going in, what then will be produced in terms of decisions and opinions um, that may be made through that process. I guess that's not the most embarrassing clip she's ever had of explaining something. No, I, I do think at a certain point, People enjoy beating up on Kamala Harris so much. That I would never. <laughs> How dare you accuse me? It becomes, yeah. you know, jumps the shark a little bit. I mean, there are plenty of examples of her sounding like she's talking to an audience of preschoolers or speaking in such generalities that it's hard to tell what she's actually she's speaking very saying. generally there. Yes. I think that's that's usually her biggest problem. And the implication is that maybe she doesn't know what she's talking about or hasn't read her briefing documents thoroughly or hasn't been briefed mm -hmm. adequately um, or is just out of her depth. You know, it, 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 it's giving not bad person or malicious intent or anything really actually negative other than it suggests that she is not mm -hmm. prepped. I mean, what was she even trying to say there? Artificial intelligence, yes, it's, it has 
a basis of information. Chat GBT is searching basically an online encyclopedia, a, a database of information it already has, trying to give you answers that are responsive to the questions you've asked or whatever. It gives you an output responsive to your, to your input based on all of the stored information it has. Um, that is kind of what she described. I don't know what the, where, where she was taking that or what the danger is there that the, I, I, it almost sounded like she was making a, a misinformation concern thing. What if it has bad information or we ask it for, or how do we, how do we the gatekeepers of society, the, the protectors of truth, you know, prevent people from seeking out bad or harmful information well, if this thing speculate. is well beyond I mean, its the entire, control. People but. can go and find the entire speech and see what she actually has to say about it. I mean, there's no point in us. You know, you know, speculating about what she did or did not mean. But I, I, at a certain point, I would expect for her to be giving speeches where she does sound notably more informed, because I would expect that at some point we hit on an issue, issue area that she genuinely cares a lot about personally, that she has a lot of personal experience in, even if it's just kind of an experiential thing, talking about her life, uh, her own personal biography, what even like an identity politics speech, speech about what it means to her to be in this position. But even in all of those contexts, she's, she tends to sound sort of vague. And that's what's invited so many comparisons to Julia, Julia Louise Dreyfus's character from the TV show Veep. And you can Google it and find innumerable uh, supercuts of them back to back in which it almost feels like the truth is much stranger than fiction. Of course, the fact that the Veep archetype existing indicates that it's not just Kamala Harris. You know, the Veep, mm -hmm. Veep came out long before President Biden was even a gleam in the eye. But it, it, maybe it is something about the position and the lack of substance that is given to vice presidents that just leads them to sound so empty in their public appearances. Mm. Well, here is another recent speech from the Veep, which was also characterized as a word salad. Let's watch. And I again want to thank the secretary for your work. Uh, this issue of transportation is fundamentally about just making sure that people have the ability to get where they need to go. <laughs> it's that basic. Yeah, it's, it's basic is, I think, a little bit the issue. Is it ever not a really superficial gloss on something? You know, if Kamala Harris were explaining how a phone works, and to be clear, I don't know how a cell phone works, you can imagine her saying, look. They put in phone? the cancer-causing particles, no. and then you put it to your head, and then you're just kidding. Just kidding. A phone is a device that you use when you want to talk. Fundamentally. We've all talked. We've all been there, right? <laughs> We've all liked to talk from time to time. And when you want to talk, you use your phone. And it is like, I simply would not try to explain how a phone works. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am not Steve, Bill Gates or whatever, Steve Jobs, whichever one of them designed the iPhone. Which one? The Apple guy. I, I'm not it's Steve Bill Jobs. Gates. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Um, and I don't know how technology works, but it seems like the, what's, what's happening is she keeps, keeps putting put in these situations. They're low stakes events, right? You know, some little transportation event, whatever. They're low stakes, but just because it's low stakes doesn't mean there's not opportunities for you to mm -hmm. sound useful and informed. And I wonder what she makes of it, because she cannot be unaware of how much she's getting pilloried for these kinds of moments. There, there have been, this isn't even from the right, there was a Daily Show bit about how she sounds just like Veep. 
And and either she doesn't care and she thinks it's all in good humor and it's funny. I saw a hilarious, um, uh, I don't know who made it, a clip, I saw it on social media, on Twitter, of interviewing this literal child, this actual four-year-old who claims to be her speechwriter. <laughs> and it's real funny. I was going to text it to you. <laughs> So, so either she she just somehow is not aware of how she's no. being characterized, or she is aware and doesn't care, or she's aware she cares and she's trying to change and is unable to do so. Wasn't she in charge of immigration? Is she still in charge of fixing the immigration problem in the country? I mean, that was also unfair, right? Like she wasn't gonna, she doesn't have the authority to it's do not it. Fixed. And I, I think that's an, an unfair. And I think there was there was there was a media cycle where I mean, her fix it. She, came didn't, out she wasn't said, even going to visit the border, so. I think that staffing her in that way put her in a tough spot. Yeah. I don't know. I suspect that she did not ask to get immigration as her portfolio, like as her as her. I mean, that's the that's a veep joke as well. At least for the first two or three seasons, where she can never, um, the character Selena Meyer can never get the president on the phone or meeting with. He's actually an unseen character, mm-hmm. the original president that mm-hmm. she's the vice president to. You never see him in the course of the show because she is not never gets any FaceTime with him. Etc. And that that feels right and accurate, which is part of why, and I know that we disagree on this, I am very skeptical about how difficult it would be for the Democratic Party to sidestep her should they choose to get behind somebody other than Joe Biden. You, wait, what, what part of this do we do disagree on? You don't think... It, oh, I don't you're think very gonna... skeptical that they could ever get behind a candidate that's not Joe Biden yes. without dealing with the awkwardness that Kamala Harris is next in line. Right, I, right. I think that, yes. And I think that it, that is the least of their concerns. Because what is she, but what is she going to do about it? I don't think do anything to, I think, uh, I, I mean, I don't think Joe Biden's stepping away anytime soon. Um, if he did, yeah, it would be hers. All right. Well, let us know what you think uh, helps to explain Kamala Harris's Mm. choices rhetorically (laughs) in her public appearance. Give her some speaking advice. (laughs) Tomorrow on Rising, we will hand off the baton to the Rising Fridays team. And uh, with that will be Jessica Burbank and Shermichael Singleton, uh, who will be filling in this week for Amber Athey. She'll be back next week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, you're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.